Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messina. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're honored to be speaking with former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch. She served as the 83rd Attorney General of the United States from 2015 to 2017, twice served as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, and is currently litigation partner at Paul Weiss in New York City. Welcome to Miranda Warnings, Attorney General Lynch. Thank you, David. Great to be here. It's great to have you. First of all, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing very well. I feel very fortunate. I'm, I'm uh, safe. I'm here in New York City. I've been able to observe the city reopening, which has been fascinating to watch. Been able to observe some of the protests also, um, which has been fascinating to watch. So uh, I'm safe, happy, healthy, um, no complaints. Thank you for asking. Well, good. I'm glad you're well. Um, you mentioned the protests, and I'd like to get your perspective on the protests. You know, I know that a common thread of your professional career has been the protection of civil rights uh, in the 1990s as U.S. attorney in Brooklyn. Uh, you oversaw the pros- prosecution of New York City police officers who beat and brutalized Haitian immigrant Abner Louima. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the difficulties you faced in prosecuting that case. Sure, sure. Um, I was actually on the trial team. Um, I, I tried the case. And it was a challenging case primarily because of some of the issues that we still see today. Police culture is a very, very difficult code to crack. And so we had a horrific attack on Haitian immigrant Abner Louima, a man who was arrested for hitting a cop and and brutalized both on the way to the precinct and in the police station bathroom. Those who don't recall the the gory details, um, he was sodomized with a broomstick uh, and suffered severe internal injuries. Um, And of course, in addition to the absolute horror of that type of harm and injury, you lay next to that uh, the absolute horror of the fact that he was the wrong man. You know, he wasn't even the guy that the police officers thought had laid a blow that had that had laid out a fellow officer. So you, you had an innocent man who was who was really brutalized in many many ways, um, and so a lot of people felt strongly about that. I think you saw a number of common threads there. It was very difficult for New Yorkers or even the country to believe that uniformed New York City officers could in fact behave in such a callous and and, uh, and an awful way because of the tremendous trust and faith and respect that so many people have for police. And particularly if your experience with law enforcement has been positive and substantive, it's very, very hard to square that with the reality of police brutality, be it Louima, be it Garner, be it George Floyd. You know, it's, 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 it's unfortunately um, an all too common experience in black and brown communities, but other communities have had a really hard time accepting it as something that, that happens in America and is a problem. So that was, a, that was an issue, um, the sheer incredulity that people felt about that. Then within the police department, you know, to talk to officers who would say, this is one of the most horrible things I've ever heard of, this should not be countenanced. I mean, just as humans saying that this is a terrible thing, but I can't be the one to come forward. You know, I just can't 
do that. Um, and and um, you know, they maybe had seen a part of either the assault or they could help us place the perpetrators with the victim and having them say, look, if I'd been in the bathroom, there'd have been shots fired, but I just can't come forward and do this. And then watching the struggles of the officers who did come forward. We did have police officers testify in that case about what they saw. And, and they were very, very important towards getting the convictions that we were able to get. So you see all the layers of, uh, of some of the same issues we're facing today, the struggle within law enforcement to deal with these issues, the failure of the community to adequately, to really comprehend these issues, and of course the tremendous um, brutality, frankly, uh, suffered by the victims of, of police brutality. Fortunately, Mr. Louima lived. Right. Now, uh, you know, I know during your time as a prosecutor, certainly, and in particular as a United States Attorney General, you focused on improving law enforcement relations uh, with the community. Um, And you mentioned, you know, the current issue that we had with George Floyd, which ignited protests uh, against the police around the country. Why does it seem like we're not making progress on these issues, where the same things that you worked on in the 90s were facing the same issues now where we should have been making progress. Sure, sure. You know, the progress that we've made is really hard to see, but it actually is there. One of the things I was really gratified to see when I went back to the Department of Justice in 2010, went back as U.S. Attorney before becoming Attorney General, was to see the expansion of the department's role in law enforcement oversight, not just in the pattern and practice investigations that we actually launched in the 90s as well, and the consent decrees that were reforming departments, those reform departments one by one. So you've got a lot of resources going there. But the collaborative reform process that they had also set up, whereby police departments that were really struggling with these issues could come to the department and seek some help, seek guidance. Um, Not from a bunch of lawyers sitting in Washington, but, you know, can you connect us with a police consultant who can help us rewrite our use of force policy? Can you connect us with other police chiefs who have dealt with improving community relations where they've made a positive change that we can connect with. And I thought that one-two punch of providing real support to law enforcement, not just the statements we always make about, yes, you know, you you put your lives on the line every day. We've been saying that for 50 years also. Um, But if you really want to provide support to law enforcement, give them the help they need to do the job in the way that they really want to do it, in a way that protects people and frankly is on the right side of the Constitution. So that was progress. Um, But again, you know, the Department of Justice is is one agency. There's 18,000 police departments in the U.S. Getting all that to scale is hard. But that's why what you you do is you seed the waters. You, You emphasize community policing. You support community policing. You connect departments who want to do better. You support those police chiefs who know that community policing improves the relationship with the community and it also brings down crime. 
And we've seen a, a, a turning away from that in the last four years. It is a tremendous missed opportunity that the current administration um, has, has missed because of their posture uh, on law enforcement. And I just, I just think, frankly, it's been a missed opportunity. Now, look, we don't know if it would have prevented George Floyd's death. We will never know. The Minneapolis Police Department was a troubled department. They actually had come to the Obama administration and sought assistance uh, around 2014, 2015, under a previous chief. And they went through collaborative reform, but they only enacted about half of the recommended reforms. So they left in place a number of things that still supported rogue officers uh, like, like Officer Chauvin that we saw. So we don't know if it would have prevented Mr. Floyd's death, but certainly it would have been more progress towards improving that department. Um, and that can still be done. You know, we can still get back to that. I think if communities insist on it and if local jurisdictions insist on it also. Now, as, as U.S. Attorney General, you had uh, special, put special emphasis on these programs where you would help the local law enforcement agencies that wanted it uh, to assist them in providing guidelines to, obviously, for the benefit of law enforcement, but also uh, for the benefit of the community. And as you stated, you actually did work with the Minia or the Justice Department worked with the Minneapolis Police Department on some of these issues. Um, what happened to those programs under the current administration? Well, the current administration has a different view. And, and look, I, I um, you know, I, I let everyone run their Justice Department as they see fit because, you know, I don't, I'm not in a position to make those changes at this point. Um, but I did think it was it was really a missed opportunity when uh, when AG Sessions specifically uh, worked to curtail the pattern and practice investigations that the Civil Rights Division was involved in, uh, and the department actively sought to overturn some of the final consent decrees that we were able to negotiate in, in the last months of the Obama administration, primarily because if you look at those consent decrees, if you truly read what we were asking departments to do, there was a lot that was forward-facing or outward-facing in terms of community interaction, community involvement, community policing. But there was also a lot that was focused on support for law enforcement, providing the training to shift over from the warrior mentality to the guardian mentality, providing resources to deal with the challenges of facing the mental health crisis that we throw onto our police officers to resolve and have been doing for a number of years, uh, working on issues of management that would improve officer morale so that their own safety could be impacted. You know, we talk about the fact that police officers have a tremendously dangerous job, and they do. What we don't talk about is that we often, in, in several years, lose more officers to suicide than we do to assaults or attacks on them from forces outside the department. Um, and so if people are in that kind of trauma, that they're contemplating suicide, or they're dealing with these issues, then how are they going to be able to interact with a community member that they come upon on the worst day of their lives also? So there's a whole host of things that we worked on in our consent decrees. And I, and I think, um, as I said before, it was a missed opportunity. And certainly it was, it was really a missed opportunity to discontinue the collaborative reform process. But what we've seen is a number of states pick those up. We've seen some state attorneys general pick up those consent decrees that we put in place and work with local jurisdictions and those police departments to continue to bring them to fruition so they can report to the court and move forward in a constitutional manner. 
of course, it's always better when you have the support of our federal government and our Department of Justice in trying to implement those programs uh, across uh, the country. Um, as you, uh, as Attorney General, you were a member of President Obama's cabinet. Tell us, uh, what was your relationship like with President Obama during your term? Well, you know, I, as I always say, and I'm happy to repeat here, best boss ever. Best boss ever. Um, you know, someone who, who cared and really was deeply involved in the policies of every uh, one of his agencies and departments. Um, you know, when you were talking with him, you had his full attention. And as he always said, I know the great things that you're doing. I know the great work that the Department of Justice is doing. Tell me what keeps you up at night. Tell me what worries you. Tell me the problems you see on the horizon, and then let's work together to try and focus on those. Um, and that's what you want in, in your leader. You want someone who acknowledges the things you're doing well, but also understands the challenges of working in government, and that we got to start thinking uh, of ways to really improve public public safety uh, issues in ways that, frankly, you know, may not be the way you've done it before. You know, I thought that, frankly, what I thought was, was so wonderful about working with him was that he encouraged a whole of government approach. You know, we had a reentry council that was led by me as, as, the, as the attorney general, but the reentry council was also populated with HHS, with HUD, with the Small Business Administration, uh, with all of the people who were involved in and helping people return from incarceration and hopefully get back into becoming a productive member of society. People need health care. People need a place to live. People need information on how to find a job. And so pulling all of those resources together enabled us to really provide an experience for people who are, who are leaving the, the criminal justice system, trying to get back on their feet. Now, again, look, it's up to every individual to take advantage of it or not. But when we have the resources and we make it impossible for people to find them, we're not helping, you know, so we were able to do things like that. That's the way that President Obama um, governed. That's his view of the country, that we're all in this together and that the voice of people out in the street was as important as those of us who sat around his cabinet table. Best blessing. Yes, I get it. So is it safe to say that he never tweeted complaints about how the Justice Department was handling his cases? <laughs> No, not even when I gave him headaches. Um, you know, one of the things that the administration was really working on was to try and get all of government um, much more aligned with technology. I mean, government's just very behind in technology and how we use it. And so there was a lot of interaction, very positive interaction with Silicon Valley on ways which we could improve connectivity. Well, at the same time, those of us in law enforcement were having a very real debate on how to keep uh, keep Americans safe, and also deal with the growing rise of encryption. Uh, that, that's important for privacy, and government uses encryption also. Uh, we were trying to have discussions, and we were having discussions about those balances, uh, and they would come to a head occasionally with, with certain cases. And so I know that when I sued Apple uh, to gain access to the iPhone of the San Bernardino shooter, that probably caused some 
two more tense conversations on in other portions of the administration that were talking to Silicon Valley on other areas, you know. Um, but no one ever came to me and said, don't do it. No one ever came to me and said, you're giving us a problem here. You're causing concerns here. Even though I knew that the executives were going back to others in the administration and saying, you know, why am I having these great conversations with you? And Loretta's over here suing me over this phone. Um, so there was never a view that they would get involved um, with with the department. Um, and it, there was only support. Uh, and, and frankly, also, if you look at the way in which the administration handles certain hot button issues, right when I was becoming attorney general, obviously, immigration reform had stalled in, in Congress, um, had failed to, to pass, uh, despite broad bipartisan support for it. So President Obama moved forward with a number of executive orders on immigration. Um, and as is often the case, he asked the Department of Justice, Office of Legal Counsel, to look at those proposed orders and advise on legality, not whether they were a good idea or a bad idea, but to do what OLC typically does, you know, is this sustainable as a matter of law? And what always impressed me as I was stepping into the Attorney General's chair was that where OLC said, you know, we think these policies are perfectly sustainable, they're consistent with law, uh, they're grounded in law and policy, but there's a few that you're proposing that we don't think are sustainable under current law. And the White House said, well, then we're not going to move those forward. You know, so to have a White House that listens to you and takes your advice, um, frankly, is a gift. Right. You know, and of course, that's exactly how the interaction is supposed to be between the White House and the Justice Department. It's important to have, of course, a Justice Department that understands the policies of the president, but also connect independently. I'd like to get your thoughts on the, the, the current administration and specifically on our current uh, Attorney General Barr when he's intervening on cases like dropping charges against General Flynn, who had already pled guilty, or overruling uh, internal sentencing recommendations made by career prosecutors in the Paul Manafort case. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Attorney General getting down in that level of specificity on cases where there is there is politics involved. Yeah, you know, I think um, this attorney general has shown that he, he gets in the weeds of, uh, of a lot of matters. And, um, you know, every attorney general is different in how they do that. I think what is, is troubling to so many people is that he only seems to get in the weeds on those cases that are connected politically to the current administration, specifically to the president. So I think if you had an attorney general that you saw intervening where you had, you know, for example, a young black man who was um, serving a prison sentence that was incredibly lengthy that we would not impose today. Um, if you saw him intervening in those cases, you might say, well, look, this is someone who wants to make sure the system is, is operating as full, as fairly as possible. But instead, you see someone who's only really focused um, to this laser-like degree on a certain category of cases. Um, and look, the, the, the issues with that have been discussed as far as those specific cases go. But I will tell you that the greater concern with that is that it gives people the perception that the Department of Justice does not, in fact, bring an equal and an impartial eye to all the cases before it that. And 
to see the, that erosion of trust in the Department of Justice is frankly painful to me. Um, I've been in the department a long time. Um, and, you know, to, 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 to watch people view it as simply the political arm of the White House is deeply, deeply painful. And I think it's something that anyone who sits in the chair of the Attorney General has to be mindful of. And, you know, it's disappointing that this Attorney General does not see that as an issue to be addressed. Um, and, and I think, frankly, it furthers the erosion of trust that people now have uh, with the, with, for the Department of Justice. I know um, in in your writings and, and hearing you speak before, you put a tremendous amount of importance in being apolitical uh, and, not, and and being not only appearing politically neutral, but being uh, politically neutral. I know you, as a U.S. attorney, you prosecuted uh, individuals on of both parties mm-hmm. um, and perhaps maybe took some heat for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we really don't see that in this administration. Attorney General Barr does not seem bothered by partisanship. You mentioned the problem that this causes, but what what kind of impact does this have on career prosecutors uh, around the country who, all of whom or most of whom have the same level of, of, uh, you know, apolitical attitude towards their work? Sure, and, and that is absolutely the case. You know, the, the people who work day and night in the Department of Justice to investigate cases and bring these cases are by and large apolitical. You would not know their political affiliation um, from the work that they do. And that's the way it should be. Um, when, I, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I hired people, and only later would I ever learn their political affiliation, and usually only accidentally, because it was not an issue for me. Um, and so I think you do see individuals now speaking out about the morale problems that this causes within the Department of Justice. I think in particular, when you've got senior DOJ lawyers who have worked on very difficult, very challenging cases, and then then they are publicly overturned or overruled um, by the Attorney General or by the boss, basically. Um, you, 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 You essentially... It, 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 it sends the message that you don't have confidence in them. It sends the message that the principles under which they joined the department, under which they've worked, and under which they made those cases are not, the, are not important anymore. Um, and that's something that, frankly, is, is never the message that should be given to the career prosecutors and analysts and agents and law enforcement individuals of the Department of Justice. You always have to, first of all, be supportive. I mean, obviously, you don't want to let something improper happen. Deal with that. Deal with individuals who, who, if you think that there's something improper going on in the case, you have to absolutely deal with that. But you deal with it by talking to those individuals and those supervisors and coming to a conclusion about how the case should best be handled and then letting them go forward into court and handle it. Not by overruling people, essentially cutting them off at the knees, so to speak, um, and sending a message that their independence is not to be valued. Now, of course, during your time as Attorney General, um, there was, uh, through no fault of your own, a, a tremendously politically sensitive case that came your way involving Hillary Clinton's private emails. And, of course, the facts of that case have been, you know, talked about uh, ad nauseum. But I want to talk a little bit about the 
procedure here. You know, of course, the FBI conducted its investigation, which is normal, as the FBI is an agency of the Department of Justice and reports to the Attorney General. Uh, but in this case, in the Hillary Clinton case, the FBI director insisted on reporting its finding and recommendations directly to the press without sharing them with the Attorney General beforehand. And that was unusual. And I still really don't understand why that happened. You know, I think I think you a lot of people share your confusion uh, as to why that happened. And I think, frankly, it was one of the problems um, that occurred in that case. The case had been investigated and handled like any other case. And by the way, it certainly was a politically sensitive case. It was far from the only politically sensitive case that the department handled throughout my tenure, both as attorney general and as U.S. attorney. We just didn't talk about the others. Um, and I think how the, the, the blowback over the Clinton email case illustrates why we don't talk about those cases publicly before they come to conclusion. And it also illustrates why, if we do announce a conclusion in a case, we don't then turn around and denigrate the person who was involved or people who were involved in the investigation. You, you've seen the results of that. And so I, I certainly can't speak for the FBI director. Um, um, and, you know, people often say that that he didn't run it by me. Well, it wasn't just me. It was, it was an action that, that frankly, uh, removed the entire leadership structure of the department um, from that review. Um, the FBI director reports directly to the deputy attorney general. Um, you know, very troubling for me to learn that uh, in the weeks prior to the case coming to conclusion, when, when, when Dag Yates would talk to FBI Director Comey about how we should make the announcement together, the three of us, uh, or just him and me, he would look her in the face and say, no, I actually don't want to participate in making an announcement about the case. Um, and again, very disappointing to learn that while he was telling her that information, he was writing his notes and writing his memo um, as to what he would say. Um, so again, whether or not he was trying to show some sort of FBI independence or, um, or trying to essentially position himself to deal with an incoming Clinton administration, I'm not able to say. You know, it's, it's at this point, it's speculation and there's been a lot written and said about it. Um, but I do think, again, it was a major, major disappointment uh, for someone to step out and, and provide their recommendations separately. And, and also do it in a way that, that characterized people in the investigation, whether you liked the secretary or not, whether you liked the people, uh, others who were also um, being, whose, whose actions were also being reviewed, whether you think well or ill of them, um, you know, to, to then turn around and try and, and, and essentially characterize their behavior, I think did tremendous harm to the reputation of the department and the FBI for independence. Now, when you were sworn in as uh, United States Attorney General, you were sworn in by Vice President Joe Biden. Um, what are your thoughts on Joe Biden? Joe Biden, um, one of the most decent human beings you could ever meet. I was, I was so happy that he was able to swear me in my first day as Attorney General because he's also someone who had been supportive of my previous applications to be the U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn, uh, both in the late 90s and in 2010 uh, when he was Vice President at that time. Um, and yeah, he and I actually spoke about that when I was thinking of returning to government back in 2010. Um, and again, one of the most decent people you'll ever meet, but also someone who's so committed to service, so committed to doing the best 
for this country and so committed to really seeing not just the issues, but the people who are impacted by the issues. And, and for me, it says a lot about his character that if you talk to anyone who's known him over the years of his career in Washington, you hear very, very similar things. This is not someone who is essentially trying to be empathetic and trying to connect with people. He truly is empathetic. He truly does connect with people. The tragedies in his life have have resonated with him. Um, it leaves him uniquely suited to understand the challenges that Americans face from so many quarters today. Uh, and I think it leaves him uniquely suited to lead this country. Well, Attorney General Lynch, I want to thank you for your service to our country over the course of your career. I want to thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings. It's a great honor for us to have you. We have, we've been talking about very serious issues. We have a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. And I'm hoping you could share something that helps get you through quarantine with our listeners. Well, music would have to be, uh, my husband and I play Earth, Wind & Fire uh, on repeat. We do that a lot. Uh, Movies, uh, he's more of a movie buff than I am, uh, but we will almost watch anything at this point to try and have a sense that we're actually leaving our own little quarantined world. Um, Books, fiction to nonfiction, um, working on a wonderful book now, um, and uh, the, the memoir Educated, um, yes. about the struggles of one young woman to leave her family uh, and essentially come into the greater world. So those are some of the things that have been keeping me grounded during quarantine. Um, but I hope that everyone has something that they can do that keeps them safe and healthy, takes them out of themselves, takes them out of their own little cabin, uh, and gives them a sense of respite. So read Educated with uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire in the background, and that'll help get you through the day. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, U.S. Attorney General Lynch, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings, and, and all our best to you. Thank you, David. All the best to you and yours as well. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.